From KVMR and in partnership with Freed, this is Disability Rep. My general area of focus is trying to better understand the challenges that people with disabilities face with transportation and trying to get involved with uh, policy discussions at the state and national level. Today we speak with UC Davis researcher Prashant Venkatram about current and future transportation for people with disabilities in the U.S. It's not guaranteed that companies who are developing autonomous mobility solutions are necessarily going to take into account the needs of people with disabilities. I really believe at this point it's incumbent on the companies to do their due diligence in reaching out. That's all coming up right here on Disability Rep. Stay tuned. Welcome to Disability Rep. I'm Carly Pacheco. Today we bring you a follow-up to our January show looking at transportation challenges and opportunities for people with disabilities. We're joined by Prashanth Venkatram, a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. In his role at UC Davis, Prashanth focuses on the state of current and future transportation systems for people with disabilities and on what policies may lead to better outcomes for our community. He's currently co-facilitating a study looking at the needs, desires, and challenges that people with disabilities in California face with transportation and housing. Prashanth received a BS in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an MA and PhD in electrical engineering from Princeton University. My co-host Carl Sigmund spoke with Prashanth in March. Prashanth. Welcome to Disability. Welcome to Disability Rap. I want to begin by asking you how you got interested in transportation. I myself identify as having a physical disability, and that uh, largely means that I need to use a wheelchair to uh, get around outside of the home. And so uh, when I started in uh, graduate school and I continued in my time there, I started to have to travel more uh, independently, especially to go to conferences and other things like that. And that, uh, more so than anything I'd been able to do before, started giving me firsthand experience into how um, transportation for people with disabilities can be quite challenging not just for long distance travel, but even for just uh, local travel within very uh, car dependent suburban areas. I can tell you a little bit more broadly about my research too. My general area of focus is trying to better understand the challenges that people with disabilities face with transportation and trying to get involved with policy discussions at the state and national level. So I've been able to contribute to some of the discussions going on at the California Public Utilities Commission about the accessibility of ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft, as well as the accessibility of future autonomous mobility companies, and similar discussions at the federal level with uh, NHTSA's new safety standards. NHTSA is the National Highway Transportation 
Safety Administration. I might have slightly messed up that acronym, but just for those who don't know, uh, and they have been coming out with new safety standards for autonomous vehicles too. And they have an interest in also trying to make sure that it is a technology that is available to people with disabilities too. Um, so I've been able to help contribute to some of those discussions, but my main uh, research is really trying to understand at a more basic level what some of the uh, challenges are, what people with uh, disabilities want from their transportation, instead of trying to just provide seeming solutions that are based on sort of outdated data or outdated stereotypes about what people with disabilities want. And what are you finding? We've been able to uh, do a focus group uh, with people with disabilities from across California, and we really tried to make sure that we included um, people from across the state, as well as people with a wide range of uh, abilities and disabilities. And so these include people who identify as having physical disabilities, people who identify as uh, deaf or hard of hearing, people who identify as blind or low vision, uh, people who identify as having certain uh, mental disabilities or cognitive or IDD, as well as people with uh, in other circumstances as well. And so what we found is that, you know, whether people live in uh, more urbanized areas or more rural areas, People who participated in the focus group almost uniformly wanted to live closer to the uh, places that they go to typically. Or maybe putting it another way, they wish that those places were closer to where they live. Uh, the problem is that we aren't really supporting the kinds of development patterns that would make that possible in the state of California and more broadly in most places in the U.S. too. Some of those things in California are starting to change, but that change will probably not come very quickly because these kinds of changes in land use just generally tend to take a long time to really flesh out. You know, a lot of the people uh, walk or use their wheelchairs or scooters uh, to get to where they need to go. And many of the other respondents uh, do drive as well. And they uniformly spoke of the need for things like better kept roads, better kept sidewalks, uh, better lighting for both pedestrians and drivers, uh, because this affects people who not only um, walk from origin to destination, but also people who walk to and from, uh, from uh, public transit stops too. You know, they want alternatives to uh, driving because driving and you know maintaining a car is really expensive, but they also don't necessarily want to be financially penalized for having to drive or own a car in a uh, set of circumstances where there really are no other viable options. So those I thought were some of the most uh, interesting findings from the focus group. You know, the thrust of this uh, study is to understand how disability affects the choices that people make for how they get around and where they live and what their desires are for those things too. And so we're really hopeful that 
many people with disabilities across the state, including in uh, Freed's service area, will um, look into the survey, will take it, and will share it too with um, others that they know. And what are you hoping to do? And what are you hoping to do with the data? I have seen that there's really not been a lot of research that policymakers can lean upon to make better decisions for people with disabilities. And so we're really hoping to fill that gap that exists between um, uh, academic researchers and policymakers on the one hand and uh, people with disabilities and especially activists with disabilities on the other hand, um, and make it clear to academic research and policymakers what the you know, most common uh, desires and choices are at the statewide level. So that way they know, especially if there are differences that um, uh, can't be explained without the consideration of disability that they can then uh, focus their efforts uh, to addressing those issues at a statewide level. They might not necessarily be directly overseeing local efforts, but they can at least provide the resources and especially the funding to localities who can um, uh, make improvements to transportation and housing uh, for people with disabilities and people without disabilities too at the local level. You brought up autonomous vehicles a little while ago. And I want to drill a bit deeper into that. We are already seeing some of these vehicles on the road now. So they exist now. And they will only become even more prevalent as time goes on. What are some of the exciting aspects What are some of the exciting aspects of AVs that you see? To expand transportation options for people with disabilities. And then, what are some of your concerns? One of the uh, concerns that I, I'm aware that many people with disabilities have with transportation 
especially if they use uh, paratransit services where they live, is the, uh, you know, low levels of availability in the sense that um, paratransit services can only go uh, uh, or typically are only uh, uh, made to go within three quarters of a mile of a public transit route and uh, operate only at the same hours of a given public transit route. Um, they often need to be booked, you know, 24, 48, sometimes even 72 hours in advance. Um, so there's no real flexibility with uh, respect to, you know, being able to travel on a whim like many people are, uh, without disabilities are able to do if they uh, can afford to do so. So there's that. And then there's the issue that uh, many paratransit vehicles uh, will come, you know, hours late. But then if you are even, I mean, not necessarily you per se, but if a rider is, uh, you know, even 10 minutes late, they might take off without the rider. And that's a real problem. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, autonomous uh, mobility systems that are designed to really account for the needs of people with disabilities can um, can uh, move past a lot of these limitations because as I see it, a lot of these limitations come from the high costs to public transit agencies of providing uh, paratransit rides. I think um, the sort of typical uh, ride price to the rider is something like $5 per ride, but for the paratransit agency, that cost ends up being something like uh, $60 per ride. And um, so one of the exciting things that I'm gonna say on the one hand is also gonna lead to a real concern on the other hand, and that is the fact that uh, the bulk of that cost, especially in many bigger cities, is um, the labor cost associated with um, uh, driving the paratransit vehicle. Because if you need uh, one person driving each vehicle, you know, that really adds up if you're trying to provide um, equivalent service to public transit. And so that brings up the concern of like, what kinds of jobs are these people going to be able to uh, get if they're no longer able to get uh, public transit or prior transit bus driving jobs? But if we, and this might admittedly be a bit you know, naive, but if we optimistically assume that we will be able to take care of the employment needs in, a, in any given metropolitan area of all of those public transit and paratransit drivers, then that suddenly means that with no labor costs and with much more efficient uh, routing algorithms, we can get um, uh, transit services to people with disabilities on demand in a point-to-point -point way at much, much lower cost uh, than was previously possible. And that also then means that it can be provided uh, much more uh, frequently, much more reliably, and with much less hassle on the part of the rider. Um, the concern that I have is that, um, you know, it's not guaranteed that um, companies who are developing autonomous mobility solutions 
are necessarily going to take into account the needs of people with disabilities. And to some degree, this is part, this is uh, partly because, you know, the needs of people with disabilities are so uh, diverse. Partly this is because uh, many companies, you know, don't really consider these needs, especially if they don't have people with disabilities guiding their efforts. And partly this is because, you know, uh, people with or without disabilities don't necessarily have uh, the best sense of what a, uh, and this not only goes for, you know, members of the public, but even the uh, people developing the technology might not necessarily have the best idea of um, how the technology is going to work and play out in practice, because by definition, it doesn't exist yet. What can the disability advocacy community do? To ensure that this technology is made with us in mind. In a sense, I actually think that framing of the question is not necessarily fair to the disability community because people with disabilities and especially their advocates and groups that advocate on their behalf, such as Breed and many others that are uh, operating in California, are already doing so much for themselves and trying to, you know, advocate for themselves in so many different venues. I really believe at this point it's incumbent on the companies to do their due diligence in reaching out to people with um, uh, with disabilities as well as uh, disability advocacy organizations like Freed uh, to see, um, you know, if there are uh, experts who work for these organizations who can uh, bring in a broad range of perspectives to help with the design or to really recruit uh, ordinary people with disabilities from the community itself to provide that diversity in numbers. And I say this because, you know, I get the sense that, you know, I am just one postdoctoral researcher at ITS Davis. And if I was able to uh, take the initiative to reach out to disability advocacy organizations uh, across California because I knew that although I have a disability and I have my own perspective on what's important to me, that that was not the be-all end-all for what could be important for my work. If I could recognize those shortcomings and uh, you know, try to correct for that by reaching out to uh, disability advocacy organizations and recruit people from the community to help with the design of the survey, then surely companies that are so much bigger and have so much more funding and so much more in terms of resources can do the same. Indeed. Indeed. I I want to switch gears a bit. There are vast numbers of train and subway stations. 
in this country. That are still not wheelchair accessible. Thirty years after the ADA. Why? The sense I get is that it's, you know, yes, money is a part of it. Yes, development patterns are a part of it. But I, I genuinely believe after having talked to people who have uh, experience with uh, working in the public transit systems in New York City and in Boston, uh, the problem really uh, is cultural. You know, Boston is a place where I spent four years. And so I have some familiarity with the system. And it's been great to see, uh, you know, each time I visit, even since I graduated, you know, the improvements in the system. Uh, I've never been to Chicago, so I can't personally speak for it. But I have heard that there have been many, um, uh, many improvements in uh, the accessibility of many of the stations, even as so many of those stations are very old and exist in very dense areas where uh, renovation for this sort of work will, you know, have some uh, level of disruption. And yet they're going for it anyway, because they know that this is uh, something that needs to be done to really accommodate everyone who lives uh, in and around Chicago. Um, the flip side of it is that, uh, okay, this is not in the U.S., so the uh, U.S. ADA doesn't apply, and perhaps this is part of the problem too, but if you look at Montreal, per, uh, for example, the Montreal Metro was built in, um, I, I believe, 1967, don't quote me on the exact date, but it was around the late 60s or early 70s that the Montreal Metro opened up. So this was um, this was at a time when disability advocacy was much more at the forefront compared to, say, the late 19th or early 20th centuries when subways opened in New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, and Chicago. So I would have thought that there would have been much less of an excuse to omit um, disability access from the design of stations in the Montreal Metro. And yet, I think it opened completely inaccessible. And another example I'll give of that is um, the DC Metro which was built before the ADA, but again, around the same time as like the Montreal Metro, you know, I think it was open in the mid 1970s. And so that was before the ADA, but because of disability activism that had been so visible by that point, and also it did take a couple lawsuits too, because I think there were a few stations in the original plan for the system that were not going to have elevators but lawsuits forced the inclusion of elevators. And so from its opening and for every uh, station uh, that was opened thereafter, um, every station has at least uh, one elevator uh, that allows uh, people with and without disabilities to get to every level. And finally, in a couple minutes, we have left. I want to bring it 
I want to bring it back to you. You talk a bit. You talked a bit before. How you have about how you have a disability. So you are personally invested. In the work you do professionally. But I want But I want to ask What would it mean for What would it mean for you? Have you never to have universal transportation for people of all abilities in this country and around the world. It's interesting that you should ask that exactly because, as I mentioned before, you know, yes, my disability has motivated me to get into this uh, line of work in the first place. And I brought with it a lot of the experiences that I personally had uh, using transportation um, uh, in the U.S. But I knew from the beginning that, you know, I couldn't speak for everyone with a disability. And I'm still learning, especially because I personally was never that active in broader movements before uh, coming to this. I was personally never that active in broader movements for uh, people with disabilities. My advocacy was basically just limited to, I mean, with the hope that whatever I advocated for would persist after I left whatever place I was in, but it was mostly limited to, uh, you know, things that I needed from uh, wherever I happened to be at that time. Um, and so, Knowing that, you know, I still have so much to learn about the needs of um, people with different kinds of disabilities and people who live in different kinds of places from where I live um, and different circumstances from where I live, too. So there's <laughs> there's no way that I could give anything like a comprehensive answer for what it would mean uh, for me to have a fully equitable transportation system. but. I can try to give it a shot and that would probably be a system that really uh, is designed with uh, serious input from people with many different kinds of disabilities at the scale which it operates, whether that means across the metropolitan area for like an urban transportation system people from across the state in very different kinds of neighborhoods, you know, urban, suburban, or rural, um, for statewide transportation policies and statewide transportation systems. And that, that really does mean, you know, not just restricting focus to um, making sure that a bus or a train has a ramp or that, you know, a sidewalk has a curb ramp at the end of it uh, when you're crossing the road, but really making sure that um, people with and without disabilities can, you know, 
try to uh, get to where they need to go without uh, too much hassle, to try to do so also in a sustainable and safe way, you know, make sure that they aren't um, being put in danger uh, by having to uh, walk or use public transit uh, just because they can't necessarily drive and make sure that people who do drive have uh, sufficiently workable alternatives to driving too. And um, one, one other point I will bring to that is the importance of uh, land use planning and especially uh, planning for housing because so much of that will then determine what kinds of transportation people can use. That was Carl's interview with Prashanth Venkatram, a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. Prashanth asked us to clarify that the views he expressed in his interview are his own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis or of the university more broadly. The survey that Prashanth talked about is now available to people with and without disabilities in California. We will link to it at freed.org. And that does it for this show. Disability Wrap is produced and edited by Carl Sigmund. Special thanks to Courtney Williams for her support. To listen to this show again, go to freed.org slash disabilitywrap or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carly Pacheco for another edition of Disability Wrap. <laughs>